You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to Smart Sex, Smart Love. We're talking about sex goes beyond the taboos and talking about love goes beyond the honeymoon. I'm Dr. Joe Court. Thanks for tuning in. This week, we're discussing kinks with my guest, Dr. Neil Cannon, and we'll be chatting all things kink. What are the differences between treating kinky individual clients versus kinky couples? Neil, a sex therapist in private practice in Denver, Colorado, says kink is more common than most folks think. And Neil believes kink is nothing to feel any shame about. Kink is a spectrum of fantasies and behaviors. It's complex. So let's discuss. Welcome, Neil. Hi, Joe. How's Thanks it going? Me on your show. Yeah, no, I'm so glad to have you here. We've been <laughs> know, known each other a long time, and it's nice to work with you in this way now. Well, I agree, and I appreciate it. I appreciate the forum, and I think that, honestly, the work you do and some of the topics you've covered over time, I think they've had huge impacts on people's lives, so maybe we can help touch a few folks' lives today, too. Good, good. Thank you. Yes. So uh, the first thing I want to ask is, um, if I could, most people say, and I get this all the time in my audiences, I'm sure you do too, what's the difference between kinky and vanilla? Can you respond to that? (laughs) <laughs> the difference and <laughs> so, well, there's an old joke, and that's where I thought you were going with this. And the old joke is the difference between um, kink and perversion. And the difference between kink and perversion is kinky is when you have sex with feathers, and perversion is when you have sex with the whole bird. So when you started, <laughs> but uh, no, now that I know this is a serious question, kink and vanilla. Um, you know, vanilla is that thing that your average everyday straight couple does. They have they kiss and they make out and they have manual sex and oral sex and intercourse. That's kind of vanilla, the definition of vanilla sex. Kinky sex or kink, they're, they're minority practices of pretty much any type that kind of falls out in the mainstream. And so that would include BDSM, it would include fetishes, it would include cross-dressing, lots of different kinds of more minority kinds of sexual practices. Have you ever heard somebody say that kinky is the beginning of one's disgust response, that if they have that response, then that's how they determine what kink is for their partner kind of thing? Have you ever heard that? I haven't really heard that in those in those terms. <laughs> but, you know, where it leads me is to think about shame and that edge of shame as an erotic um, beast, right? So like there's one side of shame that's completely unerotic. It's toxic, toxic, it's hurtful, it's harmful. And then there's the other side of shame, you know, this fine, fine edge that's completely erotic. And so what we would never want to happen in real life is exactly what we'd want to have happen sexually as a peak erotic experience. Can you say more about that? Why not? Well, let's take humiliation, right, as a thing that happens within the kink community and mm-hmm. as a subset of within the BDSM community. Mm-hmm. Some people would hate, like, right, if, if you or I were giving a speech, we would probably hate to have all of our clothes accidentally fall off and spill coffee all over our face, right? That would be, like, the bad kind of humiliation. Yes. But a lot of people might enjoy being called names or spit on or take your thing 
that they wouldn't otherwise want in real life. But in the erotic situation with the right context and with the right intention and in the right partner and then the right mood, that might be really intensely stimulating and arousing. Absolutely. So one in one sense, they're in control of, of, the, of the shame and the other they're not. Is that a good distinction? I think control is a really important distinction because I think people in, in kink and in especially in the BDSM aspects and realm of kink, um, being able to reclaim part of their sexuality as, as part of it, um, being able to be in control of exactly what happens. So there's two kinds of pain, right? There's good pain and bad pain. So I would hate to stub my toe in the middle of the night. Oh, that's bad pain. But some people do like to be spanked or whipped or caned or pick your thing or have their nipples pinched. But those people have negotiated for that and they have a contract for that, an agreement. And so they're in complete control of just how much pain they receive and what kind of pain. That's a great somebody Somebody that wants, if it's okay, somebody that likes to be, I think a lot of people don't get this, including therapists. Like one person who wants to be spanked with a ping pong paddle might never want to be spaked with a cane or whipped with a cane or hit with a cane, struck with a cane or vice versa, right? Some people that want to be hit with a cane would never want to be spanked with a ping pong paddle. The pain is different. There's different kinds of pain. And what we're really talking about when we talk about pain is we're really talking about sensations, which kind of leads into what you talked about earlier in terms of this is a spectrum. An eroticized spectrum, which I think people forget. I had therapist uh, once. I've had many actually say to me, "How could that be sexual for somebody? You know, the pain. How could pain ever be sexualized?" And I always say, and wonder what you say. It is. It's eroticized. It's play. It's the pain is erotic for them. It's not for you, but it is for them. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, you know, one of your mentors, and certainly somebody that I learned a lot from was Jack Moran, right? And he talked about erotic templates and. I kind of took Jack, you know, erotic templates are what turn us on and turn us off. And I took Jack's concept of erotic templates and turned it into the way easiest way I think about erotic templates. They're like thumbprints. There's no two thumbprints that are alike. There's not one thumbprint that's better than another. They're just different. And so for some people, certain things turn us on with our erotic template. And for other people, that would be a turn off. But that's what makes us uniquely different as sexual beings. Agreed. And tell us, could you, um, what is the most common theme you see in the kinky clients that you treat? I, Joe, I think it's shame. You know, at the end of the day, the majority of people that walk into my office for support around kink, there is some level of shame. And for a lot of people, it's really deep shame and it's, it's a lot more subtle for other people, it's really clear. Like some some clients, Joe, they'll come to me and they'll well, just like I know they come to you and they say, "I've never told this to anybody before, and I'm so afraid." Mm-hmm. And so it's the first time, like for us to be able as clinicians to be able to witness that and hold space for that, and let people process these things that you know sometimes they've kept secret for 35 or 50 years or however old they are. Yeah, because most people their erotic templates get formed really young. Right. If I'm working with a client who is into being spanked and they're 35 years old, there's a really good chance that 
formulated for them one way or another when they were five or six. Yes. You know, I struggled, as you know, and I've come out about it recently publicly, but I've been out about it for quite a while, is uh, my own kinky thoughts and behaviors. And I struggled with the shame of it. Uh, but I, and I identified myself as a sex addict be, uh, because then I thought, well, this is not really me. It's a sex addiction and uh, something out of my control. Uh, that's a whole other podcast. But I, what helped me, I have to be honest, in the sex addiction treatment was talking about it and talking about it and talking about it. And even though I would receive shameful feedback, it was still helpful to talk about it. <laughs> so that mm-hmm. by the time I got into my forties, I was like, I, I like this. And my first masturbatory fantasies were of this kink. So it's not like I, it just came out of nowhere and I know exactly where it came from and I enjoy it. So I finally decided to do that. But you're right. It's the shame that I was ashamed of it that kept mm-hmm. me in the closet. And I think this talking process that you're referencing is so important. So like for some clients, I think what we're doing is we're actually helping them practice talking about it. So it normalizes it in their own head, in their own behaviors, with their own heart and feelings and psychology. And it helps them, the more they say it, the easier it gets to say, the more real it becomes, it gets demystified. Um, And then the practice part, not only is for them to be comfortable talking about it with themselves, hear themselves talk, be able to talk about it with us, be able to talk about it with partners and, you know, and actually be able to say in non-kinky places even that they're kinky. Yeah, and I'm sure people listening to this who who are uh, suppressed with it or, or burying it or ashamed of it are horrified to hear this, right? Because that's like a big, huge step for anybody to do, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that I, I always have so much admiration for clients that come in and they start to unpack this part of themselves because we all have different parts. And so when they start to unpack their erotic self and be able to verbalize it, honestly, Joe, sometimes I've seen people walk in my office and it's like they've lost 20 pounds. They're just Mm -hmm. lighter when they walk out the door after Mm -hmm. starting to talk about their kink. Yes. I had a guy in my office recently who uh, finally realized exactly what he liked and um, he allowed himself to have it. He had gone through sex addiction treatment to try to give himself an eroticectomy, you know, that whole thing. And he yeah. came in my office and I said, I think this is your erotic orientation. I think it's a part of you and I think it's okay. And the next time he had an orgasm after listening to me, he said he enjoyed it so much his stomach hurt. That's how, how pleasurable it was for him. And I, it brought tears to my eyes just listening to him enjoy his sexuality in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, permission, right? You gave him permission to, to be himself. Yes. Right? You didn't give him permission to do anything crazy. You just gave him permission to be himself. Yes. And at the end of the day, that's what most people want, right? Whether it's because we're attracted to partners of the same sex or we're, um, we have a gender identity that's non-conforming or whatever it is, or if it's kink or if it's a fetish, just to be able to be free to be ourselves. Right, because sexuality isn't separate from us. It's a part of us and it comes from us. I like that you reference Jack Moore and he talks all about that. And it's helpful to people to have erotic empathy for oneself, I would hope. Right. We try to be gentle with ourselves, kind with ourselves about all these other things. Can we be kind with ourselves and have empathy for the sexual part of us that a lot of people don't understand. Yes. And that's one of the tricky things, like as a client, being able to go to a therapist who gets it is really tricky, right? There's only what 700 ASIC certified sex therapists in the world. And so 
my heart also goes out to folks just trying to find somebody that they can talk to about this and will and know they'll get compassion and empathy and understanding from their therapist. Yeah, an educated therapist who, because most therapists are not trained in sex therapy at all, in any sexual health ways at all. They might get a weekend right. workshop, uh, a couple hours, but nothing like we've had to do, the hours and hours and years we've spent in this. Right. I did my doctoral dissertation. I don't even know if you know this, but I did my doctoral dissertation many years ago on, um, it was a psychological assessment of BDSM practitioners. We um, and the, the sample size it was 141, which is a, for people who don't know research. That's a pretty good size sample size, especially for a subject matter like this. And I was at a cocktail party, and somebody introduced me to a psychologist and said, "You need to. You two would have a lot in common. You ought to talk." So I'm in the middle of my dissertation. I, meant, I told her what my dissertation was on. She said, "Oh my gosh, you don't need to waste your time with this. I know exactly what the outcome is going to be." you know, in terms of a psychological study of BDSM practitioners. And I'm like, well, this is really hard. So if you know the outcome, you can save me a lot of brain damage and time. And she said, well, you're going to just find out that they're all sick. So that was the, that was the lens of a licensed clinical psychologist is that BDSM practitioners are sick. Yeah. And yeah. of course, our findings were the truth is that there were no higher incidences or rates of um, mental illness in BDSM practitioners than there are in the general population. Are there BDSM practitioners that have mental health issues? Yes. Are there people in the general population have mental health issues? Yes. But as a group, they're just the same. Yeah, right. Exactly. And people need to hear that. I'm glad you're highlighting that. I remember when one of my, in, in my doctoral program, I had, we had to go to a dungeon and I remember the woman that started the um, process of showing us what goes on there. She says, she, I know you're all therapists and my hope is that you, you stop labeling us as borderline personality disorder and trauma survivors because that's what most people do. I want, because, because it's not heteronormative, right? It's not, uh, it's not, what um what we know of as sex in our culture and because it's unusual to people then they start to think well this must have come from somewhere when in fact all of our sexual health and all of our fantasies come from somewhere right so causation is a big thing that you know you asked me well what do people come in for causation's another one what caused me to be this way why do i like this what why is my or a spouse why does my husband want to be spanked? Why does my wife want to be humiliated? Pick your thing. Um, and so what we, what we know about causation, so one of my mentors was Dr. Charles Mosier, is Dr. Charles Mosier. And the thing he told me, I'll never forget, it was a cold winter night in San Francisco, and I walked into his office, and I asked him, poked around at causation questions around kink. And his response was that, that there's so many factors. There are so many variables that go into making up one's erotic template yep. that it's imp almost impossible to know causation. And I know you and I have had some really rich discussions on this too. And, you know, the other side of this coin is even if, even if we don't know exactly why, there's some people that create a narrative around, well, the reason I like kink is because of blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And if it serves them well and it makes them feel better and it gives them a more empowering narrative than whatever disempowering narrative that they were sitting with, that's okay too. Yes, right. Because I do right? think there's a difference between scientifically knowing and psychologically believing or feeling. Yes, 
Right. I mean, I just do believe that many people, it does come from somewhere. It gets eroticized, sexualized. And for other people, it doesn't. We had one guy on here. He was my first uh, podcast. He was, he calls himself a roper. And he said, I didn't have anything happen to me other than I was a Boy Scout and they handed me a rope to tie a knot and I got an erection. And I remember thinking, this turns me on. And now I like tying people up. So it wasn't, it was, it was an introduction to and opening his eyes to it wasn't because of the rope, you know? So yeah, people make their own narratives. You're right. Sure. Because, you know, then what asks, what, so many things come up for me as you say that. It's so interesting because it's like, well, if it was that, that was actually the cause, and maybe it was, I don't know. Well, why wasn't it the green uniform? Or why wasn't it being outdoors? Or why wasn't it, <laughs> yes. you know, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Right. Um, I think the narratives we tell ourselves can be really disempowering or really empowering. I think that he has a really empowering narrative. Good for him. Mm-hmm. Yes, agreed. What would you say, Neil, are the key uh, are, are the keys for treating kinky clients? I know communication, safety, trust. What else is are keys in the treatment of them? Yeah. So I have a new um, book chapter coming out with actually somebody you know well, Tammy Nelson, and it'll be out in March. It's a Pessy Publishing book. It's the integration of sex and couples therapy. And my chapter that I co-authored with um, Amanda Sasek is called. Um, a strength-based approach to treating kinky couples. So kind of one of my lenses on the world is everything I do, I write, I speak about, I always, it's a strength-based approach to pick your thing. So in here, what the great thing about that chapter was, it really forced me to think, what have I been doing? What have I been doing for the last 15 years? How does this work? Why does it work when we treat kinky couples? And so the first part is like, really we broke it down into four parts. The first part is, creating therapeutic alliance and so to to clinicians that's kind of like the no duh to clients it's like oh my god if that means that i trust and like my therapist and respect my therapist then i feel safe that sounds really yummy um but to clinicians it goes a lot farther right it's like well yeah but how do you create therapeutic alliance with a kinky client because there's so many nuances. If shame, if, if most or all parts of a kinky couple is coming in, if even one part has shame, then we as the clinician need to really work hard to um, make it safe and help treat the shame right out of the bat. I've had this belief that, you know, we've heard this old saying, all roads lead to Rome. Well, for me, when it comes to sex therapy, all roads lead to shame. So if we can help people treat shame, we can help people heal. So to me, that's the key part of treating kinky couples and helping both people in the room know, assuming we've got a couple of two people, helping them know that I'm never going to make one person want less kink and I'm never going to try to make one person do things they're not comfortable with in terms of kink, Mm -hmm. right? It's helping them collaborate on a solution that works for them. So that's the first step. Do you want me to walk through the other three real quick? Sure, please. Yeah. So the second step is to create, help the couple create an understanding, you know, a clear understanding of what each other actually wants and doesn't want. So for instance, I had a couple where they were kinky. He was submissive. He wanted her to be dominant. One of the big things he said he wanted was anal sex. So in her mind, she had decided that anal sex meant she needed to put on a strap on with a 10 inch dildo and grab his ass and go at him. And when we started to really, and because there was so much shame, it wasn't something they could easily talk about on their own. 
Mm-hmm. So when we started to really unpack it, what it really meant for him was, oh my gosh, if you would just, if I, if I was just had handcuffs on and had a little, you know, a little lube on one of your fingers and you wore gloves and you poked around inside my butt, that's all I need for anal play. And that, so that was like this clear disconnect. Mm-hmm. They, there was a clear misunderstanding of what actually was wanted. And in this particular couple's case, there were lots of those little things or six or eight of those little things. So really helping couple, the couple unpack and understand what each other wants. That makes so much sense. Yeah, right? And then, like I said, when I wrote all this down, it was like, it, it didn't seem like um, brain surgery to me. It was just what we did in our room every day, but yes. it really was helpful to like get it into steps. Therapists like steps. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, and so do clients, right? They like it too. Yeah. Can I and ask? The, oh, go ahead. Oh yeah, no, sorry. And then the third part was um, to, is to to build empathy. So the, from a heartfelt place, the couple has to really care about the other person's position. So I had another like to, you know from a really emotional place. So I had another couple where they um, they were kind of disconnected around kink. And in fact, there had become a lot of animosity about what he wanted versus what she wanted. And in the case of this for a couple, um, it was a lesbian couple. One was submissive. One um, was kind of reluctantly dominant. But the big thing was they were in their, they were in each other's heads and they weren't in each other's hearts. And when one of the people said, in a really emotional way that what I need is I just need the BDSM that kink being submissive feels like sunshine to me. It's like, if I don't get sunshine, I'm in the dark. It's like being in a cave. And that person was crying and really sobbing. The other person got it. And they were like, Oh my gosh, I didn't know that's what it meant to you. I'm so sorry. And then she was crying. So every, they're both crying. And that's when things started to open up for them. Mm-hmm. You know, and then the person who wasn't as kinky had through therapy, we made created the opportunity so they could do the same thing and talk about their feelings of, well, what's it like to dominate my partner? And she had her own feelings around, you know, what it was like to have to be in her mind, you know, a mean dominatrix. And then we learned through unpacking that, well, that's not what our partner actually wanted anyway. So, you know, it's just the steps of creating therapeutic alliance creating understanding, creating empathy. And then the last piece is to help couples collaborate on a solution. And the reason I really intentionally use the term collaborate is because when couple in the, in the world of kink, in the world of BDSM, people talk about negotiating and contracts and negotiating contracts all the time. So I completely pulled out the term negotiating. I don't want my couples negotiating with each other. This isn't a trade agreement. This is mm, about love love, that. Right, right? right? This is marriage. This is relationship. This is connection. So I really want them on the same page, collaborating, trying to create a solution that works for both of them. So those are the steps. They tend to be a lot messier than what I just walked through. And therapeutic alliance, that first one, which is also, it's like creating a safe social engagement system. Nothing happens in therapy without a safe social engagement system. Yeah. At least nothing positive. 
And that can be broken at any time, right? All it takes is the wrong look, the wrong body, the wrong judgment, the yep. wrong body image. So we as therapists, we have to be on the balls of our feet as I, to, you know, to always stay in this place where we're never shaming a client. That's like my number one mantra with me, with my students, never shame a client. So Neil, where can they get this book? What's the name of it? It is um, Integrative Sex and Couples Therapy. It'll be out in March of 2020. So that's the, almost this year. This um, Pessy Publishing, P-E-S-I. All right. And, uh, yeah. And where can they find you? Uh, they can find me in Denver, Colorado. I'm super easy to find. If anybody just Googles Neil Cannon Sex Therapy, I'll pop right up. But my website is drcannon.com. And doctor spelled out D-O-C-T-O-R. And then Canon is C-A-N-N-O-N, drcannon.com. Thank you so much. It is easy to find you. I mean, you do a lot of good work in Denver. I mean, and nationally as well, obviously. But, I mean, you do a lot of community organizing for therapists and people in um, that are coming to the therapist. So I'm so appreciative of having you on here. It's too short. I had so many more questions. And maybe we'll have you on again to finish even more questions um, at some later time if you're willing. Of course. Anything for you, Dr. Court. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Cannon. <laughs> I really appreciate it. You're welcome. All right. Take care. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Smart Sex, Smart Love. I'm Dr. Joe Court, and you can find me on joecourt.com. That's J-O-E-K-O-R-T.com. See you next time. <laughs>